have your attention. Turn around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll separate y'all if I have to. So, uh, let's, let's begin with a word of prayer tonight. Father, we do bow before you and thank you for your presence here. And Father, you are here not because of who we are, but because of you, because of the love that you have for us. Father, we thank you for that, and we honor you, and we worship you for that. Father, I pray tonight that you will allow us to search through your word, and we know that the Holy Spirit will lead us into the truth. We trust that because you tell us that's what he does. Father, help us then not only know the truth, but then apply it to our lives on a day-by-day basis to live the truth of your word, not just be hearers. Father, help us as we strive to be peacemakers in our community, including our family, our fellowship here, our community, our county, our state, our country, ultimately our world. Father, thank you again for loving us, and it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Well, according to the slide up on the screen, I'm talking about the principles of church discipline tonight. And part of that's true, and part of it's not exactly. Um, Several months back, it was during the summer, Scott contacted some of us and asked if we would be willing to do a couple of lessons each uh, during the fall. And I volunteered. I always loved doing this. Um, And then he said, just pick out a topic. And I got to think, yeah. I covered kind of an outline of church discipline, principles of church discipline in April of 2014. I had to go back and look that up. I couldn't remember it right off the top of my head. But uh, I thought, well, I, I think I want to do that. So I put all the notes together. And about three weeks ago, sent them to Scott, maybe two weeks ago, sent them to Scott. And then about four days later, I texted him and I said, throw them away. <laughs> it, this, it's all changing. And what, was, what changed in that was the prep work that I was doing to go to the Peacemakers Conference last week. Um, and re- reading the book by Ken Sandy, The Peacemakers, going through the pre-work for the conflict coaching and conciliation uh, seminar and going through the pre-work for the mediation training uh, just changed things, at least for tonight, completely. So... Um, first of all, I want to apologize, though, um, when I ask questions and you respond, if I don't hear you, if I don't understand what you've said, it's because that Saturday I tested the theory that hearing aids are not waterproof. (laughs) It's a fact. They're not waterproof. (laughs) Hudson wanted me to go swimming when I came in from Virginia, so we put on our swimsuits. He put his swimmy on. I put his swimmy on, he got in the pool, I put my goggles on, I dove in, and my ears immediately went, so this one came out quickly, and I put it up on the side of the pool, this one wasn't there, and I looked down, it was in the bottom of the eight-foot pool, Um, so yeah, it died, so they've now been sent off to be repaired, and at a, praise the Lord, at a much more reasonable rate than replacing them, so that was... Um, it was an interesting weekend, so um, I can hear somebody talking, but I may not be able to distinguish what you're saying. So we'll, we'll work through it the best we can. I started to just think, well, I just won't ask any questions. Eh, that's kind of rude. I didn't want to do that. So we'll, we'll work through it the best we can. All right. 
We're going to be looking tonight in a number of different passages, but I want to start with the basic passage that we're going to be looking at over the next two weeks of Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. It was really interesting. I grew up in, um, while you're looking for that, I'll, I'll say this. I grew up at, in First Baptist Church, Fort Stockton, Wet in West Texas. And I was, what would that have made me? 31 years old in 1986. Y'all can do the math. Okay. 1986, when I was 31 years old, for the very first time in my life, I heard a sermon and a teaching out of Matthew 18. I'd never heard it before. I'd heard it alluded to, but almost in whisper, like, we can't go there. Um, So... Having, having gone through this uh, then and a number of times since, I believe this is something that the church needs to know. The church needs to live by, abide by, and it's, it, it's part of what God gives us to operate the New Testament church. So, in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, it's it's really important, as always, to note the context of this passage. The disciples had just finished asking Jesus who would be the greatest. You know, and, and, and I love Ben's story of being in the sequoia forest and you know these towering trees of 200 feet and a couple of kids walking along saying I'm taller than you are (laughs) you know in the midst of that giant majesty they're arguing over you know quarter quarter of an inch maybe Uh, so the disciples kind of fell in that same thing but Jesus explained to them that they must strive to be the least rather than the greatest and to give deference to others rather than what they think they have a right to Jesus had just warned his disciples to not give offense to others and to be careful how they walk. Now the next passage is what we often refer to, as we talked about, as the principles of church discipline. Jesus has instructed his disciples at this point how to work through the circumstances when someone has caused them an offense. Now, what what problems should the principles of church discipline deal with in the church. Yeah, I can read lips. <laughs> Said he, oh, yes. Right. Anything that you can't overlook. And Jacqueline asked that because her and Shannon were at Peacemakers Conference last week also. So they've kind of got an inside track here. But yeah, that's fine to answer. 
Really, the answer to that is anything that impacts our life in a way that we can't overlook. And that's exactly what Shannon said. So it deals with not particular problems and not the quote-unquote big sins because there's no such thing as a little sin. Sin is sin, and God hates all of it. But if we can't, if, if we're trying to reconcile, and it's not even if we can't reconcile, if we're trying to reconcile, the principles of church discipline are applicable to what we do every day. Okay. So what is church discipline? It's the application of biblical principles to true believers that is designed to bring order to the person's life and to the body of believers that we call the church. And that's a definition from Dr. Adams' book, The Handbook of Church Discipline. I heard him actually teach that in 1986. And in that same, in that same seminar in 1986, Dr. Adams made the statement that really raised a lot of eyebrows and wrinkled a lot of foreheads. Uh, because he was, he was talking to about 200 pastors and counselors um, at, a, at a, a counseling seminar that he was in that week, that he was key, keynote speaker. And he made this statement. If your church is not practicing church discipline as outlined by the scripture, then you are not a New Testament church. Okay. Is that an accurate statement or would you disagree with that? Yeah, exactly. We're not supposed to pick and choose. We are to adhere to the, in, to the full message of the Bible. Okay? It is uh, the, the full counsel of the Word of God is what we're called to live by and walk in. Not just what's easy or not just what tickles the ear or not just what's fun. Let's, let's face it. Um, okay, I want a show of hands. How many here enjoy being disciplined? Hands? No, discipline's not a fun thing. The outcome of the discipline is a wonderful thing because it leads to reconciliation, and that's what this is all about. When... <laughs> Uh, I remember one time, I was seven years old, I remember this specific incident that I did. I'm not going to tell you what that is, it's none of your business. Um, but my father caught me, and he took me back to the bedroom. And after he talked to me for a little while, you know, and I hated the conversations worse than I hated the spanking. You know, I would rather just get spanking and move on. But he talked to me for a while, and that was just painful. And in that conversation, he said, what's about to happen hurts me more than it does you. And at age seven, I thought, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> In fact, about five minutes later, when I'm walking down the hall crying, I said that out loud. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. My dad said, what'd you say? <laughs> uh, I had to go back and work through that one then. Okay. But as a dad now, and as a grandfather, I understand exactly what my dad was talking about. If disciplining your children doesn't give you a gut check and maybe not your stomach then you probably need to take a step back and re-examine the situation 
The same thing in the church. If the church is involved in a disciplinary process, and if those involved, even if it's just the one-on-one thing that we're going to talk about in just a few minutes, if it doesn't knot our stomach up and we wished we could do anything but that, if we don't have that attitude, we need to take a step back because I've probably got the wrong attitude about the whole thing. Discipline is a painful process. But without discipline, what happens? You remember when Moses was up on the mountain? And he was up there for a long time getting the law. And he left Aaron in charge. And it says that Aaron let the people loose. What was was the result of that? God's wrath. God's wrath. Yeah, and the result of God's wrath was what? Discipline. Discipline. Men put swords on their thigh, and they went through, and they killed people. Okay, it's, I mean, it's hard. It is hard. Now, uh, Corey, if you'd put that next slide up. Okay, this is a diagram of what the process of church discipline looks like. Step one on the far left-hand side at the little peak is the first step of church discipline. And that is our self-discipline. This is the stuff that we are to do every day as we rightly walk with God. That's the first step of discipline, is self-discipline. I didn't check the the specifics of the date or anything, but not long ago, I think it was last fall, Scott, you went through the, the spirit of the disciplines. Was that in the fall? Okay, and he went through and talked about 12 disciplines that Jesus walked in that we also can walk in the same disciplines. Okay, that's step one in the process of church discipline, the things that we do that are rightly walking with God. Now, the two widening lines as it goes further to the right indicate that more and more people are being involved. Okay, we're going to camp on step two tonight. And in step two, that's the the one-on-one. And that's, again, that's Matthew 15, verse 18. Or, I'm sorry, um, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, in, in this situation... It says, if your brother sins against you, this is about an absolutely known offense. You know that there's an offense, you're the one offended, and you're to go. Okay. Um, in terms of how do we do this the right way, I want to examine those truths tonight. <laughs> And the first thing I want to consider is this one-to-one fact. You go to the person alone. A-L-O-N-E. One-to-one. Now, does going alone mean that you call five or ten or fifteen of your friends and tell them the incident and say, what should I do? Is that what we're supposed to do? Okay. I see some people doing that. All right, everybody do this. That's not what it means. Does it mean going to Facebook and posting the incident and taking a poll of anybody that wants to respond to this incident? Does it mean that? Right, everybody great. do this hard. <laughs> no, we don't do that. We go alone, one-to-one. In fact, the word 
Go. In verse 15, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. That word in the original Greek is the word hupago. And that word means to go quietly, almost secretly. Not drawing any attention to yourself. And certainly not taking a poll or asking for advice. God's word has given you what to do. Okay. And it's like, um, you may have visited somebody's house at one time. I know nobody here has ever had this problem. And you're sitting there talking and you see a little mouse go across the room. Now, does that mouse jet across the middle of the room with all people around? No. They go around the baseboards. They go under the furniture. They don't want to be seen. They don't want to draw attention to themselves. That's really the picture of, of the word hupago. It's going quietly, secretly almost, but certainly not with fanfare and calling attention to the incident. Because you see, God's principle in this is to keep things as tiny as possible. See, if it involves step one in self-discipline, guess what? Nobody ever has to come to you. you know, so it stays small. Okay, if there's an offense, then it's one-on-one. -on -one. So now it's just two people that are involved, and that's all. Nobody else needs to know. Now, why, why should we bother, quote-unquote, bother, with this process in our very busy, very important, everyday lives. Why should we do this? Why should we go just one-on-one -on -one quietly? Reconciliation. Reconciliation, okay. Bible instructs us to. Bible instructs us to, right? So we do this moving toward reconciliation, but because that's what God says to do. So it's to be obedient to God, ultimately, and it's, so it's not a bother. Okay? It's just not. Now, I want to examine that point by reading 2 Corinthians. Everybody turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 17, or 17 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5. And this is ultimately the why. 2 Corinthians 5, verse, beginning in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. <clears throat> Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Okay. Underline that in your Bible. Okay. That last phrase. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So you can underline that. Entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, 
that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. You see, why do we do this? Why do we go to people one-on-one? Because God has given every single one of us the ministry of reconciliation. This is not for just, this is not just for some. This is for all. Capital A, capital L, capital L. All of us are called to a ministry of reconciliation. Now, just last week, and I've, I've mentioned before, um, that I was able to attend the Peacemakers Conference. Um, ben and Scott attended this several years ago, and then Ben and Greg Fields went back and went through the mediators. This time they added a one-day conference at the beginning called the Path of the Peacemaker. And as I was preparing for that week and reading through the material, I thought, this, this one-day thing we're going to go to is exactly step two. It's the how-to. Now, it's not a formula. And it's not, if you do this and this and this, it equals this. That's not what I'm talking about. But it's a process. And it's a God-honoring process that as we walk through this, we can see God glorified. Why? Because we are all called to a ministry of reconciliation. And see, that's something that I had never really grasped before. I may have heard it at some point. But it didn't really hit home until last week. And that's when I realized <laughs> my notes that I'd sent to Scott were just trash. Throw them away, Scott. We're, we're going to do something else. Okay. Does, does hearing that statement that we were all given a ministry of reconciliation, do you find, does, does anybody find that shocking or troubling? It's like, I don't think I'm really called to that. You know, I, I kind of wrestled with that myself. Um, it's what God's Word says. And it's like, it's like Patrick said. It's in God's Word. That's what we do. In, in conversations with some of my newly met brothers in Christ last week, and there was there were some really incredible people that I met. It was really neat. Um, in, in fact, I met some folks that I've seen just recently. <laughs> Shannon and Jacqueline Fulp were there for the uh, conflict coaching and conciliation. So were Terry and Theresa Sadler. Um, so there were five of us from Crosspoint, Greenville, Texas, in a room full of maybe 50 people about that. So we had about a tenth represented, which was really cool. And then when they found out that we had three others in our fellowship already trained in that, they were like, he's like, Morris, you've already got a peacekeeping team established. And I was like, mm-hmm, yeah, and that's what we're going to be doing. So because I know now we're called to that. Um, but as, as we were talking, as I was talking to some of my brothers up there, we, we really reflected on the question, why the church is not embracing that basic principle of ministry of reconciliation? Because we don't see that that often. You know, we don't really hear about that that often. People just kind of... You know, I want to make a gross generalization, so maybe this is a moderate generalization. Um, so often people just kind of stumble through relationships. And the church, in way too many cases, so if it's only one time, that's way too many. But in way too many cases, the, the church almost steps back away from that. Why? Because maybe they don't know what they're supposed to do. And they haven't been taught. 
As I thought about that, you know, it really came to me that as part of my Christian heritage and growing up at First Baptist Church, Fort Stockton, um, which I, I love that part of my heritage, but there were things that were missing from that and things that at least I, I came away with a misunderstanding of. And when I read and when I heard the Beatitudes taught growing up in Sunday school and training union and Wednesday night and the junior class, if any of y'all grew up, well, y'all aren't, aren't as old as I am, so never mind. Well, Jerry is. <laughs> but you didn't grow up in the Baptist church. So anyway, um, you know, we, we heard these things, but when I heard Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Whether it was taught that way or whether I just remember it that way, at least I remember it that way, it, for me, it communicated that that's what some people are called to. Some people are peacemakers. Not everyone. And that, that's, that's what I grew up believing. Um, even, even as an adult, when I started in counseling ministry, I thought, okay, I'm a peacemaker. I'm called to do that. And in a very real way, I just kind of thought that was almost a little special badge. It's not. It's a special badge for all of us to wear. Because we're all called to do that. This ministry of reconciliation is defined as bringing two or more people together to restore a friendship, to settle or solve differences, or to bring harmony to a relationship. That sounds like a pretty good thing, doesn't it? Everybody do this. Okay. It does. I mean, it is a good thing. It's not only a good thing, it is a good thing because we're called to be peacemakers and God calls us. All of us at the level of our own personal relationships. Now, you may not be in a mediation role of maybe two mediators sitting there and a, a group over here and a group over here and trying to help them reconcile. It may not be that. But every one of us are called to step one and step two. Every one of us. Okay. So this is something that we need to embrace. We need to understand. So a question comes to mind. When is there a need for reconciliation? Okay. When there's conflict. The next question is, is conflict a good thing or a bad thing? Say that again. It's good if it brings reconciliation. How do we know if it's going to be a good thing or a bad thing when the conflict first Approaches, its, approaches us. When do we know it's going to be a good thing? When you reconcile. Well, at least when you start moving in that direction. You know, when you say, okay, guess what? I'm called to this ministry. I gotta go do this. Okay, it's our response to the conflict that makes it a good or a bad thing. Okay. In, in the world, um, does the world move toward tension or away from tension characteristically what toward for, oh run from well some people want to create tension yeah so they may move toward it but if if we're you know from a world's perspective if we're moving toward tension it's like whoa let's back away so it's stepping back it's running away from it's trying to escape 
But God tells us that our response to tension or conflict should be one of trusting Him, knowing that God will help us move through that to reconcile whatever the, whatever the conflict is. Okay? Even the worst possible circumstances. Okay? In, in counseling ministry, I've run into this a number of times over the... I said this the other day for the first time. 31 years I've been doing counseling. That's a long time. And yes, Dan, I'm old. He's thinking. Yeah, you're old. Um, and, and, and I've seen a number of times in a marriage situation where the worst possible thing can happen in that relationship. And what is that? What could, what's the worst thing that can happen in a marriage? What? Contemplating divorce. What can lead to that? Stop talking? Okay. Infidelity. That's what I'm looking for. Infidelity. Adultery in the relationship. Because some people in some churches teach that when adultery happens, divorce is the answer. You know what, guys? It doesn't have to be. You know, and I've seen God reconcile those worst circumstances in marriage. I've also seen people walk away from that. And... Some people justified in that when the adultery is not repentant, when the person is not repentant. And that, that's what hinges on whether this can be reconciled or not, if there's repentance. Okay. But God can heal even that. He can even reconcile that situation. The worst possible conflict you can imagine in a marriage. So why does God do this? Because he cares about relationships. God is a relational God. We've just, I think we finished the study. I think I missed the last one. Uh, went through a, a book study with, with Ben. There was about eight of us or nine of us, something like that, on Trinity and reality. One of the points that was brought out in that book time and time again was that God is a relational God. Just the fact that there's a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit indicates that he's a relational God. So he created us in his image as relational people. And so God cares about relationships. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I think we all agree that conflict will bring about tension in a relationship, but positive tension, in ter again, in terms of the way we respond to it, think about positive tension like a rubber band. If you stretch a rubber band out, and let's say it's one of those big ones that it's, a, you know, what, what is the tendency of the rubber band when you stretch it out and there's tension in that rubber band? What does it want to do? It wants to return to its original position and in doing so pulls, you back, pulls your two hands back together. So it pulls the two people back together. That's positive tension. Negative tension is like a spring. that You can compress the spring, but its tendency is to push the two sides apart. Okay. That's 
a picture, at least for me, of healthy tension and not healthy tension. Okay. God wants us to be involved in that healthy tension. Um, again, I mentioned that this, the, the first conference that I went to, that one-day thing, was called The Path of the Peacemaker. And that was basically, it's a new course that the Peacemaker Ministries is, they're in the finalization and fine-tuning process to make that a one-day conference rather than what they've been teaching and, and, and presenting, the conflict coaching and conciliation and the mediation training. Those two together are four days, okay? And, and that was tough. Um, back in the summer when this option of going to the Peacemakers came out and I started looking at it, I told Scott, I was like, I really want to go to all three. I want to spend all five days. He's like, Morris, that's eight hours a day. Dude, that's 40 hours. He said, that's a killer. <laughs> I said, Scott, you're talking to a guy that spent 12 years in college. <laughs> Five years as an undergraduate, seven years as a graduate. I loved the process. And I did. It was, it was five days of awesomeness. Um, also, Friday night, I spent one more night, and I slept from 11 that night until 10 the next morning. I almost missed the plane. <laughs> I was exhausted. But it was an incredible week. Um, Okay, if you would put the next slide up there, should be the Peacemakers logo. And this is, this is the path of the Peacemakers. This is their new logo that they're, they're working on to teach. And they really want to market this to as many churches as possible in a one-day event. In fact, I've already signed up with the Peacemakers people while I was there, told them that we want to be on the list sometime next year. Hopefully, we can have that event here and open it up not just to our folks here, but even to the community. Um, in fact, I hadn't talked to Scott about this yet, but there's one more training that, that's about teaching Path of the Peacemakers, and if I go through that, then I can teach it. So I want to do that. Um, they were really excited that there were three deacons from Cross Point at that, that, that and he's like, man, you got a, one of them even said, you've got a peacemaking team. I said, yeah, but I got 25 more deacons and wives. They need to go through that. And we've got deacons in training and wives that need to go through this. We've got a whole host of people. Um, and so that's really, that, that's, that's one of my desires. And talking with Shannon and Jacqueline and Terry and, and uh, Theresa, we're, we're in agreement with that. This, it was just incredible information. Okay, so let's look at the three directions. It is ascend, reflect, and connect. Okay, those are the three points of the path of the peacemaker, okay? And some of them, I've, I guess really all three of them are pretty self-explanatory, but since I've got about another 20 minutes, I'm going to explain them. <laughs> so bear with me. First of all, our first direction, when there's a conflict, and again, this is about, you know, going back and thinking about the first diagram when it showed, you know, step one in discipline was, was the or the step one in discipline was the self-discipline that we do every day. The second step is going one-to-one. -one. This is a picture of how we go one-to-one. -one. But our first step in that is that we must ascend to the Father. Okay. If, if I go one-to-one -one with someone that I've got a problem with before I've ascended to the Father and spent time in the throne room, then I'm probably going to blow something up. Because you know, I, I probably don't have at least... 
fully the right attitude. I may have some right attitude, but if there's even a single wrinkle there that I could have ironed out, I should do that first. So we go to the Father because God is in the midst of our tension. He is our first resource. He's in the middle of our story. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 29 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. <clears throat> and see, God cares for the brokenhearted. Sometimes our conflict can literally shatter who we are. And that's the picture of the broken heart. It's not just a, gee, that really offended me. This is someone, this is a situation where you can be absolutely shattered. And God cares for the brokenhearted. Psalm 34, verses 18 and 19 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Okay, I need an amen on that one. The Lord delivers us out of every one of those conflicts because of who he is. So as we, as we ascend to the Father and we spend time with him, the very next step is to then reflect. I have to reflect on me. Okay. Why should I reflect on me? In this process, when somebody else has offended me, make sure your heart's right. Yeah, make sure my heart's right. Because guess what? <clears throat> I may have contributed to the problem. And if I have, God's going to show me. And I may simply have contributed to the problem by my initial response. I may have gotten swelled up, and maybe I said something to somebody I shouldn't have. Okay, if I've done that, I've contributed, I've contributed to the problem. So we're not to do it. So we ask God to help us reflect because God is the one who can and does reveal who we really are. Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24 is one of my favorite passages about this reflection. And in that passage, David said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. And know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Now folks if you ask God to search you. What do you think he's going to do? He's going to go. Nah. I don't need to do that. <laughs> you ask God to search you. He's going to search you. And if there is any part of you that's contributed to the, to the conflict. God's going to reveal that. Okay. When we spend time in reflection, we ask God to show us who, you, who we are, and he does just that thing. It's not in condemnation. Remember, remember Romans 8, 1, where God said through Paul, there is now therefore, or there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when God reveals that, when we ask God to search us and show us our heart, and he does so, he didn't do it to condemn us. He does it to help us get to the place where we can move to the next step. <clears throat> what takes us to that next step <clears throat> excuse me, is the log and speck principle. Who knows what the log and speck principle is? 
Okay. I saw Danae's hand go. What is it, Danae? Yeah. Before we go and help take the speck out of our brother's eye, we are to examine ourselves and take the log out of our own eye. Matthew 7, 4, and 5. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly how to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So this is not about not going to help your brother take a speck or sister take a speck out of their eye. It's about being able to go rightly. The only way you can go rightly is to make sure there's not a log in your own eye. Um... Consider someone doing eye surgery. You go in to have a cataract fixed in your eye. And you get in there and you find out the eye surgeon's blind. How long are you going to stay? <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep up with cataract instead. It, it's really that same thing. God tells us, I don't want you to go. He doesn't say, I don't want you to go. He does say, I want you to go rightly. So you have to take the log out of your eye. Okay. Now, when there is a log in our eye, many times it is because we think, I'll, I'll personalize it, many times it's because I think I've got the right to then fill in the blank. Okay. And that can become a log. When that log stays there long enough, what then does it become? Four-letter word starts with I. Idol, yeah, becomes an idol. Okay. What, by definition, is an idol? <clears throat> Anything we put above God. Could that be an attitude? Uh-huh. Could it be something that we think we deserve? Can be. Okay. I want to introduce to you the slippery slope of idolatry. And Scott, now I just saw Scott say, I love that. We've talked about that. It is, it is one of the most incredible little tools. So let's go to the next one. Here's the slippery slope of idolatry. You may not be able to see it clearly, but I, I did the best I could at last minute's notice at about four o'clock <laughs> to get this last slide to Scott. <clears throat> but the beginning, the beginning of this slippery slope to idolatry typically could be an okay situation. It could be an okay situation in our thinking. It begins with desire. Up at the top of the hill, okay, there's a desire. And the desire is, I would like to have fill in the blank. Okay, now that can be a number of good things, okay? It doesn't have to be a bad thing that takes us to the, the idol. It could start with a good thing. In a marriage... I would like to have better communication. Oh, that's a good thing. But if, it's, if, if, if it goes the wrong direction, then it becomes a problem. And the wrong direction is this. If the desire is unmet, and many times those unmet desires are not spoken. They're unspoken desires. But we can justify it. <clears throat> And I, I'm, I'm really good at this one by saying, if Kendra really loved me, she would know what I want right now. 
Okay, she's not a mind reader. And I'm really glad <laughs> that because my mind goes in the wrong place sometimes. That's what we all do. But that, that desire can slip very quickly. And many times it slips because the desire is, is unspoken. And we just expect the other person to know what we're thinking. And we set ourselves up into that. <clears throat> when, when the desire is unmet, it then becomes a demand. It slides down that slope. So the next thing is, it started with, I would like. The next thing is, I must have. And you fill in the blank. And again, these are often unspoken. And you begin to simmer in your own stew. We do. I mean, all of us are good at that. At least I am. And again, when we do that, if the demand is now still unmet... It slides down another spot and it becomes expectation. And the expectation sounds like this. You will give me fill in the blank. Okay. It may still be unspoken. And what is our response to that? We start drawing away. We start closing down. We stop speaking. Maybe we'll go out to the shop. Maybe we'll go jump on the lawnmower. I mean, we can do a number of things without saying anything to the other person. <clears throat> this then leads the simmer to become a boil. Okay, we start boiling in our stew, you know, and it's getting worse and worse. That leads to disappointment. And the thinking then is, or the, the self-statement is, you did not give me my desire of blank. So now it's pointing to specifically to the other person being at fault. This leads to judgment. Judgment sounds like this. Because you did not give me my desires, you are fill in the blank. Okay. And we, we name what we think that person is. It's not a good thing. This then leads to the step of punishment. Punishment says this, because you didn't meet my desire, then I will, and I fill in the blank of the consequences. Okay. It's a slippery slope. It starts heading down. It's hard to recover. It's recoverable, but it's hard. When you get to the punishment phase, you have then set up an idol. Because that, that desire has become more important to you than the relationship that God has called you into with that other person. Be it a friend or a marriage partner or a brother and sister in Christ. It doesn't matter who it is. As long as, you know, as for believer to believer, that thing, that desire, whatever it was, has become more important than the relationship. So it's an idol because we're saying... What I want is more important than what God called me to do. And that's to be involved in a ministry of reconciliation. Okay. So it is a slippery slope. Now, when there's an idol, and think about this, from an Old Testament perspective, anytime there were idols set up in whatever, you know, whatever context or community or country or whatever it was, and the worshipers of the, of the idol would go and worship, what did the idol not personifying the idol, but what was demanded 
of the idol worshipers? What did they have to provide? Sacrifice. They had to provide sacrifice. They had to bring something to the idol to sacrifice. So literally, idolatry leads to death. Okay. It may be a momentary death in your relationship with God. Because when we put an idol above God, we've broken the first commandment. So it, it, it leads to a momentary separation between us and God because it's sin. Okay. How do we deal with the sin? We repent. Okay. God gives us the answer. It's not hard to do. Well, sometimes it's hard to do. But it's doable because God gives us the ability to do that. But it could result in the death of a relationship. Maybe for a, a, a moment when we've said to the person, you, because you didn't do this, I'm out. I'm gone. Okay. So there's been a death. There's been a sacrifice to that idol of whatever that desire was. Okay. It's a slippery slope, guys. And gals, it's a dangerous place to be. But thanks be to God, we can reverse that. And we can reverse that at any point we find ourselves on that slippery slope. And you do that by backing up and saying, where did this come from? What was the desire? And you look at it, you examine it, you go, hmm, Bob blew that. When you have that idol, and maybe it's with the person that has offended you, and you then go to them because that's the next step. If we go back, to, we don't have to go back to the other other diagram, but the next thing after we ascend to God and after we reflect comes down. Then we go horizontally and we connect with one another. So we go and we connect with the other person. Connecting is the primary goal, or the primary goal of connecting. It's to move now horizontally toward and with the other person to be reconciled to them. And if we found ourselves on the slippery slope of idolatry, we repent, we confess to God, we're forgiven by God, and then our first step in connecting with the other person is to confess to them what I've just been involved in. If I have a problem with Robert, and we don't, by the way, just don't, don't be nervous. But if I had a problem with Robert, he did something that really bothered me. And then I got, you know, I got all boiled up about everything. <clears throat> and I got on this slippery slope of idolatry. The first thing I would have to do when I go to Robert, I said, Robert, you know, brother, we got some things to talk about. But the first thing I need to do is confess to you my sin in this. I have to be the one to take the lead in that. Does that sound fun? It's not easy. It's certainly not easy the first time you do it, but after you do it once, it gets a little easier because you're able to experience that sweet forgiveness of reconciliation with someone, and God lets us experience that. Once we experience it, hey, let's do it all the time. You know, it, 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 it's not licensed to go out and offend someone just to be able to reconcile. I don't, you know, I don't want to coach that at all. Yeah. Pat and Jeff, y'all behave back there. <laughs> okay. Um, but when we go and we connect, we're demonstrating God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness. In essence, connecting involves identifying any shortcomings on your part that cause the conflict. Again, you have to, you have to confess that first. 
then you work to better understand the issue from the other person's perspective. You know, as, as they confess what they did, try to understand what was going on there. If you understand the context, that's going to help. We then have to reconcile differences in a way that honors God. We pursue any, sub, any substantive issues that cannot be overlooked and need to be addressed by confession, repentance, and forgiveness. And I'll, I'll end up with this real quick. Confession and forgiveness involves following what I refer to as our spiritual bar of soap. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God not only forgives us, but he cleanses us, cleanses us of the unrighteousness of that. So when we forgive someone, and put up that next slide, Corey, there's four promises of forgiveness. When I forgive someone, when you forgive someone, you make these four promises. I will not dwell on this incident. It literally means don't remember. Okay? If, if I did something seven days ago and you got offended and we get it worked out and we move on with forgiveness, the commitment that you make is you're not going to think about that incident again. Now, it may pop into your working memory, but at that point, you haven't remembered it. It's the temptation to remember. When you remember it is when you sit there and you dwell on it, and you think about it, and you put all the details back together, and you start boiling again. Okay. When you forgive someone, you make the promise, I will not do that. I will not dwell on the incident. The second is, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. Where God says he forgives us and he will not remember our sins against us again. It never comes up from God in an accusing way. We make the same promise. You may still have to talk about the consequences of the, of the incident. But it's not done in an accusing way. And if you're talking to someone about it and they're starting to feel accused, then you take a time out. You pray about it and maybe take a break and then come back later. Because it's never about accusing again once forgiveness is made. Then you also make the promise to not talk to others about this incident. Again, keep in mind, the principle is keep things as small as possible. You know, it's not about spreading. It's not about, you know, you don't take an ad in the paper. Hey, you know, Robert offended me and I forgave him. And, you know, it's not any of that. It's keeping it small. Very, very quiet. The, third, the fourth thing is I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. In other words, guess what? It's reconciliation. Okay. Reconciliation takes place by confession, repentance, and forgiveness between one another. And that's the beauty of what, what God called us to in this ministry of reconciliation. I want you to put up the last slide, and I'm going to end with this real quickly. Uh, Corlette Sandy is the wife of Ken Sandy that wrote the book. He wrote the book, uh, Promise Keep, uh, Peacemakers. Promise keepers? That's old. Uh, peacemakers. Corlette Sandy has a children's curriculum. I hadn't seen it yet. I just saw this little, this little excerpt. I think we need to examine it. I'll, I'll probably order it, and I think the ladies will maybe use this at some point. But she wrote a little poem to teach the children in their children's ministry about those four promises. And the poem is this. Good thought hurt you not. Gossip never, friends forever. That's what reconciliation looks like.
We're called to the ministry of reconciliation to be peacemakers. Why? To be obedient to God, to honor God, and guess what? To be blessed. It says in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Let's get that blessing. Now, we're going to continue to dig into this in more detail next week. Um, I've got one announcement, and then we're going to close with a quick word of prayer because I know the kids are probably already out running wild. Uh, there's a young adult. Is that right, Scott? A, a, go back to that one? Okay. Uh, there's a young adult fellowship tonight right after the Bible study over at the Fields House. And this is single adults, only single, or just anybody that considers themselves a young adult? Whoever, okay. And there's going to be food there. I hadn't eaten supper, maybe I'll go. Am I, am I a young adult? Oh, okay. Well, I'll pray anyway. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you called us to a ministry of reconciliation for one reason, well, two reasons, to be obedient to you and to receive your blessing. Father, what a sweet truth that is. And it's my prayer, Father, that as a fellowship, we will embrace in even a greater way this truth that we are all called to be peacemakers. Father, help us walk in that in our lives day by day. And help that become infectious, not just in our community, not just in, at Crosspoint, but in Greenville, in other fellowships, in our workplace, at the park, on the soccer field, for our children to be able to learn what it means to be a peacemaker with their siblings. Ah, what a sweet thing that would be. And then, Father, in our county, our state, our country, and our world. Because we are called to be peacemakers for your honor and glory. Father, thank you for loving us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Right, go grab your kids. If you don't have any, grab somebody else's. <laughs> Yes. Okay. Yeah, I learned a long time ago when what people don't want is to 